DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Father Joseph Fezio, who is the founder and editor of Ignatius Press. He was a student of Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict XVI. Father Fezio has written and spoken about Pope Benedict's decisions to restore the tradition and the liturgy, and he joins us to discuss Benedict XVI's reform, The Liturgy Between Innovation and Tradition by Monsignor Nicolae Box, and The Voice of the Church at Prayer, Reflections on Liturgy and Language by Father Juve Michelon. Both books are published by Ignatius Press. Father Fezio, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, Chris. Good to be here. The liturgy is an essential element of who we are, not only as Catholics, but as people. It is. It's uh, it's our whole life, and in fact, in the Middle Ages, it was seen to be the center of all their lives. That's why they put churches at the center of their villages and towns and cities, and the Eucharist was basically meant to be the gathering together of all of what we are and what we do and offering it back to God. Yeah, so liturgy is, is in a certain sense, is the purpose of life. And in fact, uh, in Cardinal Raskin's book, The Spirit of Liturgy, he talks about the exitus reditus, the uh, going out from God in creation and coming back to God through our uh, you know, responding to his invitation, and that the liturgy is the heart of that turning back the whole universe to God. So you're right, it's the center of the universe. You wouldn't think that by reading the papers, but uh, it is. I think we began to really appreciate once again the importance of the liturgy when the experience of those of us who experienced the English translation of the liturgy, whether you're in America or you're in Australia or in England, there was this great need to once again bring everybody back into that richness. That's right, and I, I was living in a desert for 40s my entire priesthood because I was ordained in 72. Uh, was using that new English translation, I mean, the, the old English translation now, uh, but it was just a pain because I knew it wasn't conforming to what was underneath it, the Latin text. Mm-hmm. Now we have a, tr- a translation which is truly beautiful. It's not perfect, probably no translation will be, but if you listen carefully to those prayers, the opening prayers of Mass especially, I mean, each one's a little meditation. They're so beautiful. Well, it's given us a, a real appreciation of, as you just said, what lies beneath, what the actual Latin words are. And we're, we're hearing Latin more and more, even in what was considered the new Mass. That's right. And people don't realize, Chris, or many, many people don't realize that the, the new Mass did not abolish Latin by any means. In fact, mm-hmm. the what they call the Editio Typica, the, the typical edition, the kind of archetype edition of the new Mass is in Latin was called the Novus Ordo Missae, the New Order of Mass. And also something people in our realize is that uh, there is no prohibition to Latin. Of course, we can sing the Kyrie, which is Greek, mm-hmm. uh, the Gloria, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei, sing the Credo, but even the parts of the Mass. Uh, I often celebrate the canon of the Mass in Latin because it doesn't change, and people get to know it pretty quickly. And so, uh, yes, you can use Latin in the new Mass and be totally consistent with the rubrics of the Mass. There was such a fear, even with the English translation that came out, with such phrases as, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. There were those who thought, well, that's just too lofty, or people won't accept that. And they liked the other way, but 
now, you know, almost a year out, Father Fezio, it seems as though it has just really become a part of who we are already. Well, yes, in fact, this this book, one of our books called The Voice of the Church at Prayer uh, by Father Uwe Lang, uh, was not published to coincide with this in translation, but it happened to do so. And what Father Lang shows is that uh, even when the Mass went from Greek, which was the common language of the Roman Empire at that time, to Latin in the 3rd or 4th century, uh, that wasn't the language of the people in the sense of it being a plain and common ordinary language. That was already, to use your word, a lofty language. It was a hieratic or sacred language. And uh, Long shows that in the history of religion, the language of worship is always a language set apart from one's ordinary daily speech. So, yes, it's a little, you know, it takes getting used to some of those words, like beseech will come up, you know, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, transubstantiation even comes in there. Uh, the the uh, You get used to that, but the point is it draws you out. It tells you there's something more going on here than what you do, you know, in your daily affairs. So it's always been a characteristic of language of worship that it is of a higher level even having archaisms in it. Now, that's the worship part. There's also the teaching part. Uh, Clearly, for the scripture readings, for the homily, for the psalm responses, you know, those should be in a language that are easy easy to understand and communicate with. And so there's a difference between the liturgy of the Word, which is more didactic, it's more of a teaching event, and liturgy of the sacrament, liturgy of the Eucharist, which is more pure worship. Well, Father Fezio, what I love so much about what Ignatius Press is doing by giving us the work of Father Long is to help us elevate the liturgy in a way that I think that we've been doing with the sacred scripture for so long. We have many studies and many history books on scriptures, and praise God that's the case, but not quite as many on the liturgy. And Father Long's book does a beautiful job of just bringing us through the history of language in the liturgy, and it's a fascinating tale. That's true, and, and uh, in fact, throughout the whole 20th century, there was, especially the beginning, there was an attempt to renew both liturgy and biblical studies, and in fact, one of the great uh, you know, proponents, Father Pius Parsh, uh, in the early 20th century, had a magazine called Bible und Liturgie, Bible and Liturgy, and the two really do go together, and certainly the biblical revival was reflected in, in better translations of, of uh, both the Old and New Testaments, but liturgical revival kind of got stalled because of the confusion after Vatican II. And one of the things that Pope Benedict said on the day he was, well, the day after he was elected Pope, was that he wants to implement the council, but in a spirit of continuity with tradition, and that's what he's been doing. Uh, so I think, just as you say, the liturgical renewal is now kind of catching up to the biblical renewal. And it's not just for the scholars, is it? Well, although, the answer is no, but although he he writes in a very accessible way, I mean, I enjoy even looking at the footnotes, and he's done a lot of research, but he tells it as a good historian does, you know, as mm-hmm. a story, and you get to see the development of the liturgy, why language was used the way it was. He gives some examples. And uh, uh, what I like about Father Long is that he is a scholar, but he's able to communicate to people who aren't. And that, that's a key thing. 
And it does say a lot about who we are, because I mean, if if you were to talk to to folks who felt disgruntled, for lack of a better word, especially after Vatican II, about the changes in the mass and the things that they like and didn't like, that this type of reading, this type of study, really can help us to understand how we got to where we are. Because the liturgy is is that the most public and most expressive experiences in our Catholic faith. That's right, and that, that kind of leads to his other book, because whereas Father Long's book is primarily about language and liturgy, uh, Father Books's book, Books's book, uh, the interesting Books's book, mm-hmm. but anyway, he's, he's got a funny last name, B-U-X-A, uh, uh, kind of outlines the problems that arose after the Council and the attempts of then Carlo Rassi and Pope Benedict to bring the liturgical, you know, renewal back in line with tradition, and he really has that as a pope uh, uh, a plan, a method that he's you know, striving for here, and this this book kind of outlines it what it is and what's been done so far and what we can do to help. I love that one of the chapter titles where it says the pope calls a ceasefire and. <laughs> I, right. I wish that were the case. It still seems to be kind of contentious, even though we. Uh, I think we should be past that, even after the motu proprio. Yes, but I think one of the great, uh, you know, qualities of this pope is his ability generally to be a reconciler, not in the way of compromising and you know abandoning important positions, but of seeing what's good in every position and and uniting it, integrating it into a whole. I mean, I saw that. He was my teacher, you know, in our seminars. These were graduate seminars, and, you know, we'd all sit around, and one person make a presentation, others would, would comment on it. He'd sit there, not say much, except he'd make sure everybody spoke. He said, what do you think about this? What, what's your view on this? At the end of maybe two hours of a seminar, he would sum it up, and it was just it was like listening to a symphony. He would kind of take all the elements that had come out in this seminar and put them together in, in one unified whole, giving emphasis where it was to, where it should be, you know, given, and uh, giving us an outline of what took place. And he's he's brilliant at that. And he did it again with the catechism. I and mean, the catechism mm-hmm. is not just a list of the teachings of the Catholic Church, but it rather is an organized and structured whole. Uh, which give you a sense of the fullness and the interconnectedness of Catholic truth. So he does that, and with respect to the liturgy, he has recognized the beauty of the Mass of the Ages. He's recognized the importance of what the Council wanted to do. He's recognized that in history, the liturgy is meant to grow slowly, organically, and we had a rupture and a break after the Council. That's got to be fixed. So that's his plan. But it's very, very all-embracing, and I, I think people of goodwill and open mind will respond to it. A Monsignor Buxall also brings out an understanding that I think few of us have. I mean, when we think about the rupture that happened or that the unfortunate turn that the liturgy took in some quarters, that we want to just blame it on the innovators and on local parish settings. And while that's t- very true, he also goes back to the committee that was initially set up to help oversee this. And he gives some of the dynamics just organically how it all kind of collapsed. So no one group in particular is the villain. Right. There's lots of blame to go around. And uh, the the council to implement uh, the official renewal and reform really was uh, very tendentious in what they did. 
And, of course, it was headed by uh, Annibale Bunini. Uh, and after Pope Paul VI saw the damage been done, he sent Bunini to be the like papal legate to Iran, uh, which is about as far as you can get from a place where uh, an archbishop would have or a cardinal would have any, any uh, influence. Uh, but it, he didn't fix anything. You know, he, he punished Bunini, but he didn't do anything to fix the Mass. So John Paul II started it, uh, but I think Benedict XVI is even more, more centrally a uh, liturgical person than John Paul II was. Well, it is fascinating with this English translation that, if I'm not mistaken, this is a one-of-a-kind, essentially. It affects all the different countries, where, say, for example, in Spanish, there's still different versions of the Spanish liturgy. If you go to Spain, it's different than what it is in Mexico. The English attempt has been to really begin that a, a huge universal type of reform standard. Yes, and that it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's wonderful to have a, a decent and a good English translation in all English-speaking countries. Uh, although I must say, you know, I've been to India a few times, and they do speak English there, but I can't always understand them, and they use words sometimes a little differently. But for the Mass, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the Mass, as I say, it's not common ordinary English anyway, so it can be a hieratic or an archaic or uh, uh, elevated English that can be acceptable everywhere, and it is. And so it, it's, I mean, I, I, w- I was in Africa last year and also India, uh, and they're, they're very delighted with this new translation, and I'm delighted that I can use the same translation everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing is happening, uh, another book, which we're not talking about now, but Ignatius Press produced a lectionary mm-hmm. uh, for, the, for the Mass based on the Revised Standard Version, Second Catholic Edition, mm. uh, and the New Grail Psalter, which was just approved by the bishops a year or two ago. And now all the English-speaking Catholics in Africa are using it, and they're going to be using it in India. And I'm hoping eventually we get that permission in the United States as well. Oh, yeah. Because as you say, having a single uh, missile, you know, in English around the world is a wonderful thing. It would also be good to have a single good Bible translation and psalm translation for use at Mass. No, oh, let it be. You know, you mentioned the term like elevated English. If we can take that next step of just lifting everybody up with the use of Latin, there is something very, can I say the word sacred? There is just something sacred about when Latin is used, not just by the by a celebrant of the mass, but also by the whole the whole congregation. Well, it's exactly right. And uh, what I found, uh, Chris, is that uh, generally, for about the last I don't know fifteen years, I celebrated mass in the new mass, but with the fixed parts, the unchanging parts in Latin and the changing parts in English. So the prayer of the day and the preface and, uh, you know, the readings, obviously. But the canon and the responses of the people, it's in Latin. And, you know, it doesn't take long for people to get those down. Mm-hmm. And I have found in traveling around that once you teach them a couple of uh, Gregorian chant curies, for example, uh, they can sing that without music. And They'll sing it louder than they sing the hymns that they're singing. Because mm-hmm. often you have a parish where the hymns are different every week. You know, and a choir may be singing, but the people can't sing. But if we had just a small repertory of Gregorian chant uh, that people would know, they could go from parish to parish, they could go from country to country, 
and they'd be able to pray in that sacred and elevated language, and they, they would know what it means. I mean, how much, how long does it take to learn what Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus means? You know, mm-hmm. holy, holy, holy. Okay, you got that down. Or curialation, Lord have mercy on us. Uh, yeah, so I, I think in many sectors there's a movement back towards more sacred sin liturgy. Uh, we're seeing a greater interest in the extraordinary form, uh, which the Pope does not want to have as the unique form of Mass, but he wants that to influence the way we celebrate the ordinary form, mm-hmm. because the extraordinary form clearly has an emphasis on the sacrality, the, the reverence due to God. Yeah, I think if you could just once again help people understand that the extraordinary form isn't some type of anomaly, that it's actually has, the Holy Father has given it a valid right a place in the heart of our liturgy. He has, and, and he, in his covering letter to the motu proprio, uh, I, I say the motu proprio, I mean, maybe your listeners need to know that's the Summorum Pontificum, which he issued on the famous day 070707, hmm. July 7th, uh, 2007. Uh, that was the motu proprio, which means to say by his own hand, by his own initiative, uh, the Pope made it much easier for priests to celebrate and people to attend uh, Mass in the form it was celebrated before the Council, the Missal of 1962. But in his letter, in which he uh, sends out that motu proprio, he, he says that he gives it the place you mentioned. It, ha- it has a place in the Church's liturgical uh, you know, arsenal, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wants there to be an interior reconciliation. And some people thought he meant by that that he wants to bring the pious attend people back into the church, those who've kind of left the church as schismatics, to bring them back. But it's deeper than that. It's clear in that letter. He wants to heal that rupture that took place between the Mass as celebrated before the Council and the Mass as ordinarily celebrated after the Council. He wants to fix that. Mm-hmm. So one way to fix that is to make the old Mass a legitimate Mass so that, and here's the second point, he talks about mutual enrichment, so that the old Mass can enrich the new, but the new can enrich the old. How can the new enrich the old? Well, a couple of the benefits of the Council, in my view, are, one, uh, greater selection of Scripture, especially during the weekday readings. Now we have a continuous reading of Old and New Testament uh, texts in the Mass, whereas before they were limited to very few texts. So now the whole table of the Word, so to speak, is spread before the people. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I, I do think it was important, and Ratzinger does too in his book, Spirit of Liturgy, that we separated the Liturgy of the Word from Liturgy of the Eucharist, the ambo from the altar. The idea of having the, the Epistle and Gospel read at the altar facing east as well as the sacrifice, the offering, you know, facing east. I think that was a mistake, uh, because there's there's a fundamentally different dynamic to the first part of the Mass. In the first part of the Mass, the priest represents God speaking to the people. So we read the Word of God, we comment on the Word of God, we share a response in the psalm. That's God speaking to the people of the priest, and the priest should face the people for that. The second part of the, and it, and it should be separated from the sacrifice. The second part of the Mass, the gifts are brought forward, they're placed on the altar 
not the ambo, not a table, but the altar. And now the priest ordinarily, you know, in, in tradition, would turn and face the rising sun, offering that gift to the Father and awaiting the return of the risen Lord, represented by the Son. And there's a, there's a different dramatic emphasis to those two parts of the Mass. And I think moving the liturgy of the Word away from the altar and giving it a special place was a very important and a very good uh, change brought about by the Council. So that's one of the ways, I think, in which the new Mass can enrich the old. But the old has to enrich the new by the care in which it's celebrated, by the sense of sacredness, and also by the use of Latin, as you say. So those are the kind of main points I would say that we got to move toward in this liturgical reform that Benedict XVI is so interested in promoting. Father Fezio, have we had a pope like Benedict XVI that has had such a great love of the liturgy, except for maybe Gregory the Great? Well, <laughs> yes. I, well, I think uh, Pius V, uh, you know, in the 16th century, who basically uh, was responsible for the Roman Missal as we had it for the centuries after the Council of Trent. Mm-hmm. But then St. Pius, he was a saint too, St. Pius X, who uh, was Pope from 1903 to, I think, 1914, uh, and he was the one that actually got the liturgical movement really moving. And his very first uh, document, also more appropriate, it was called Tra Le Solicitudini, which means among the cares that I have as Pope. And he put the renewal of the liturgical music at the very top of the list. So certainly St. Pius X was a great lover of the liturgy and, a, and one who wanted to reform the liturgy. Uh, but I think but next would be Benedict XVI in time, because, I mean, he's just a liturgical man. He was born, you know, Holy Saturday morning at, at the vigil. He was born about 4.30 a.m., and four hours later his mother took him to the Easter Vigil Mass, which was in the morning in those days, and he was baptized, you know. So he's born and baptized right in the middle of this most sacred liturgical moment of the Church. And that shows up in his life. I would hope, especially after being blessed with having the opportunity to read the works of Father Long and also Monsignor Books, that this movement that we have right now, that I, and I mean it in the, the larger church sense of the love of the liturgy, that we can begin to, to study it and to remunerate over it like we have Scripture. And it won't be from a lack of material from Ignatius Press, that's for sure. Well, thank you. I hope that happens, and I hope that Catholic Radio plays its part. I mean, you know, when I was interested in Catholic Radio, there were only about seven stations around, and I started something which didn't, which ended up being a failure. But uh, since that time, there's more than 100. I think it's getting close to 200 now, mm-hmm. Catholic stations around the country. I mean, this is a, this is a great uh, event, my view, in the, in the Church of our time. And as far as I've been able to tell, most of the Catholic radio that I've been involved with or even heard about has been very, very faithful to the magisterium and very faithful to tradition. So it's a, it's a great source of genuine renewal, in my view. Tell us, uh, have you had the opportunity to see Pope Benedict recently? And if so, how, how's he doing? How's his health? Well, I, I would generally see him every year at least once, uh, and uh, he meets with his former students in the fall. I didn't go last year, uh, but, you know, he's always himself. He's, he's getting older, obviously. Uh, I think he's tired more easily, 
but I see him bounce back. Like last time I was there in morning seminar, uh, you know, he looked really tired. And I said to myself, for the first time, the Holy Father looks to me like he's really aged. But then that afternoon we had a second seminar, and he was completely lively again. So I, I just think he's, uh, you know, he's got to take it easier on some some of his activities. But his mind, obviously, is not uh, dimmed at all. Uh, he's still working. Maybe we'll, we'll finish this year, his third volume on Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, but, no, he's, uh, he's a very tranquil person who just keeps going like the like that bunny, you know. Mm-hmm. And what's coming up for Ignatius Press that you're very excited about? Because I know you have your hands firmly ensconced in what's going on. Uh, let's see. Well, you know, the, our UCAT was a huge success, the Youth Catechism, and that is still mm-hmm. being very widely used and bulk purchased. And there's a whole group in Germany that's, that's, that's preparing new UCAT materials, and we're just finishing a, a UCAT prayer book, uh, which I think is wonderful. And, you know, just as UCAT catechism is being used by adults in mm-hmm. RCI courses and elsewhere, I think this youth prayer book will be used by adults, too. It's a beautiful introduction to prayer uh, and to traditional prayers of the Church and to the Divine Office. Uh, so I think this will be a big, uh, big step, too, in prayer renewal. Well, it's one of the most interactive books that I've had my hands on, and I mean it in the way that we look at media today, whether it's on a computer screen or an iPhone or something like that. When you pick up the UCAT, it, it, it doesn't feel like just a book. It feels it grabs you right off the bat. It does. The graphics uh, and the, the, the layout and everything, it, it makes you want to say, enter into it, and that's what young people are doing. Uh, it, it's a great blessing for the Church. Any final thoughts, Father Fezio? Final thoughts. Well, I just want to thank you, Chris, and everybody at Catholic Radio for keeping up that beautiful apostolate. And, you know, we try and do it with print media and from films and, you know, DVDs, but we have to try and make Christ present everywhere we can. Mm-hmm. And nothing can take the place of personal encounter and personal witness and evangelism, but we need to have resources. We need to have knowledge. We need to have information. And I think Catholic Radio, Catholic Publishing are key elements here. So keep up the good work, and we'll try and do the same. Well, you inspire us all, Father Fezio. Thank you very much. Sure, God bless you, Chris. With Father Joseph Fezio, we've gone inside the pages of Benedict XVI's Reform, The Liturgy Between Innovation and Tradition, by Monsignor Nicolai Balx, and The Voice of the Church at Prayer, Reflections on Liturgy and Language, by Father Juve Michael Long. To learn more about these books or to obtain a copy, go to ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find them at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this discussion along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.